0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 140 and it's 13th of August, 1838. 10,000 Zulu warriors had appeared at Khatzla, the headquarters of the Fortrekkers, under the brow of the Drakensberg, sent by Dingana and led by Enlela Karsompiti. In South African history, and general memory, there are major confrontations which are part of modern consciousness. These would be things like the Zulu defeat of the British at Isant Luana and the Anglo-Boer War, and in the 20th century, the border wars and the ANCN, PAC struggles against apartheid. However, this battle at Khazla, the lager that would be renamed Fechsla, or fighting lager, is one of the most important that has been forgotten in the annals of time. It was 10 a.m., and swarming down from the hills to the east of Haslaga were the experienced, and the mostly married warriors, the creme de la creme, the most feared. The lager was protected on the east side by the Bushman's River, which was flooding. If you glance at a map, the lager was southwest, of where the town of Escort is today. Entlela then issued the command to halt, and the Amabuta stopped well out of range of the food trekker an open ground to the north and the west. He formed his troops up in their classic three tiers, the chest and two horns taking his time. Inside the lager, Erasmus smit the prerikant and the folk fell to their knees and prayed, May he grant us the victory if we have to fight. Strengthen our hearts. Seventy-five Furtricka men and a handful of the more hardy women and boys were now facing the full might of the Zulu army of ten thousand. It seemed a hopeless cause, but there were a few things in the Furtricka's favour. The flooding Bushman's River for one. Another was the approaches that had been set up so the Amabuto had no place to take cover as they tried to assault the wagons. And the third is the Boers had a cannon. Entlela, however, was a brilliant commander and was planning to deal with this death zone set up by the Trekkers by sending his left horn of soldiers down the Bushman's River to cross and then attack at the same time as the other two sections. This would stretch the four firepower. His troops were well drilled, highly skilled. The left uponda, or horn formation, forded the Bushman's River at a drift below the lager, out of range, while the right horn swung around the northern side of the wagons to threaten the western edge of the defences. And Lele had now cut off the foretrickers from any possible retreat. His men were both sides of the river. Because of the drift crossing across the flooding river and the intricate manoeuvres, it took the Amabuta two hours to reach their jumping-off points, but finally at noon... The signal was given, and they attacked. Intele had deployed his warriors in waves. They did not bunch together to make it easier for the trekkers to shoot them down, and they also used the ground, probing and moving fast. Inside the wagon lager. the scene was terrifying. The shouting of the warriors, they joined Usutu yells, brandishing spears. There wasn't a single pause in the assault. There was not a universal charge. It was line after line, moving forward, sideways, pulling back, returning, When one line went down or was exhausted, a second moved up and behind them, like a tide, threatening to flood the defences. The Boers wheeled out their main weapon, a single cannon, two and a half inches in diameter, five foot long. It stood on two wheels and was forged from black iron and fired horrendously damaging large slugs of lead. It was the first time the Zulu had come across such a weapon and it caused terrible wounds. As the Zulu got closer and closer, the defenders saw their dead compatriots clothing on some of the Amabuto. Would their clothing end up on the warriors? Some were wondering, but this also served as a warning for what lay in store if their defenses weakened. Then there was a much more deadly trophy from previous battles that the Zulu wielded. More than 100 muskets were in the hands of the selected warriors. These opened fire on the trekkers, and throughout the battle on the 13th of August they kept up sporadic bursts. However, the fire was inaccurate. Most did not aim the musket. They merely pointed it in the rough direction of Hatzlaher and pulled the trigger. Not a single footrecker was hit by this erratic fire, but it unnerved the Boers that the enemy was not only throwing and wielding spears, they were now shooting their own weapons back at them. There was rain around, so the powder was slightly damp. Not ideal for the Boers, but they managed to keep it dry enough to sustain a constant and accurate fire. They used two types of muskets that day. When the Amazulu were close enough, they let rip with their lupers that sprayed shot like a shotgun. The Sannas, for longer range, the massive weapons normally deployed to down elephants. After an hour, their attackers began to wilt. Hans lange alias Hans Dorns, decided this was the moment to seize the initiative, the moment to sally forth. A small detachment of a couple of dozen men joined him. The Boers managed to drive the closest warriors back, but could not take the chance of riding too far from their lager, and they hurriedly re-entered the protection of the wagons. A short while later, just after 1pm, the Zulu withdrew to the open felt on the south side of the wagons and stopped fighting. Ntlela had decided to weigh up his options and ordered the men to encamp for the night. Then they began to slice up the oxen and sheep in a kind of gratuitous display of violence, cutting up the animals in full view of the trekkers, a grisly performance that lasted all night. All this did was further fire up the foretrekkers. The restlessness of the Zulu that night meant that no one inside the wagons slept. At the same time, the Boers had an ingenious way of keeping the warriors away, using long poles or whip-stocks to suspend their lanterns high above the wagons. The whole area was lit up, while to the south, on the flat land, across the river, and well within view, thousands of Zulu fires burned in the darkness. If anyone had been watching from the nearby hills, it would have looked incongruous in the dark African night, like an immense hippodrome of dancing orange flames, sputtering lights, belying the terrifying barbarity of war. Before dawn on the 14th, Hans Dorns and a larger detachment had another go. The foot were trying to catch the Amazulu off-guard to seize the initiative once more, and the sortie did catch the Amabuta unprepared, but they recovered quickly. Hans Dons conducted a fighting withdrawal, and the warriors seemed to forget that their quarry was returning to a lager bristling with firearms. Many of the Zulu were now caught in the zone of fire and shot down. Inlela Karsumpiti had gathered his senior induna around the previous evening and reconsidered their tactics. He was now going to try and smoke the Boers out and a select group of warriors charged the wagons with spears covered with plaited grass that had been set on fire. The flaming Isidula were carried by these men towards the wagons and they became well-lit targets in the early flush of dawn. The Boers' accuracy was unerring. One by one these charging Zulu went down, their spears setting fire to the grass and bushes around the wagons. The smoke from these fires and muskets drifted about in the early morning light breeze, shielding both sets of combatants from each other. Another day of intermittent charges and feints then took place, and Lela seeking a weak point, finding none, the Boers rebuffing attack after attack. While they parried and thrusted, other warriors were busy rounding up the foot of cattle and sheep, and as the sun began to set on day two of this battle, the main body of the Zulus stopped the attack and withdrew to their camp once more, for Inklela to reconsider what to do. In two days of constant fighting, he'd achieved very little except he'd seized the Furtricka's cattle. The other sections with these herds headed off east towards Mgungutlovu in the setting sun, setting fire to the felt behind them in case the Boers tried to counter-attack. Once again, the Boer lanterns were suspended that night, and once again the Zulu avoided a night engagement. The more observant among the defenders saw the number of Amabuta fires appear to have been reduced to a few dozen from the thousands. Perhaps the Zulu had left? Hans Duns decided to take the initiative once more, and before dawn he and most of the men rode out, and the Zulu, who were still close to the lager, turned and fled. It was not a long pursuit. The Boers were nervous of being ambushed. The Zulu continued to adopt a scorched-earth policy as they withdrew, the felt burned for a two-hour ride in all directions, smoke drifting about for days afterwards. During the morning of the 15th of August, poor reinforcements rode up from Ghat Maritz's lager at Little Chugela. The extra 60 men almost doubled the number of muskets available and the trekkers felt a little more at ease. And Lela had been told about these reinforcements and he thought better of turning and renewing the assault. Dhamabuto the then withdrew to Dingana's Mgungoglovu leaving behind dozens of wounded, and the Boers systematically killed each one they found. Some had been skillfully treated by their medical men, their broken bones set with splints, their gunshot wounds plugged and sealed, which surprised the triggers. It was time to take stock, and literally, because the Boers had virtually no stock left at this lager, the Zulu had seized all their cattle and sheep. In terms of casualties, however, it was a lopsided battle. The Chequers had lost one man, Johannes Kunrad Fruneman, who had been caught outside the wagon as the first warriors appeared some distance from the lager, speared on the first day of fighting. A Khoisan servant woman who had been gathering firewood some distance from the lager was also caught in the open and killed. The Zulus, on the other hand, had lost more than 500 men, possibly as many as 1,000. Hundreds of bodies scattered about the lager, and soon the odour of putrefaction became too much, and the Boers dragged the corpses to a nearby ravine. That didn't help much, so the Trekkers abandoned Fachlager and headed back west to where Maritz had remained on the Little Chigela. The lessons the Amazulu drew from this battle, which they called Imagabeni, were negative. What had happened was clear to all. The Boers had defeated Dingana's massive army and shot down hundreds of warriors. Despite Inglele's smart moves, his deft deployment, he was utterly baffled and failed to overcome the logger. The Amma and Debele, of course, had discovered the same weakness in their tactic. They could not overrun an extremely well-defended position directly, even with vastly superior numbers. Now, strategically, the initiative shifted to the trekkers. Dingana had played his cards. His men appeared to have died in vain. The Chequers built a second position on the south bank of the Little Jugella River. It was directly opposite Maritza's lager and commanded by Kurs Portkito. Deep trenches were dug, six foot broad and six foot deep, and along the sides of the wagons they piled great embankments or sods, and thus the name of their new lager, Sui Lager, Sod Lager, and it was here that they would remain until mid-September. They had arrived at Maritza's side just in time. The respected leader was dying of heart disease, dropsy, and the once fit tall man was a pitiable sight. He'd been extremely ill for six months, and in early September he collapsed. Even for those who disputed his decisions, he was much appreciated, and already held in reverence by many. This was a cruel moment for the foot His end was near, and his faithful visited him as he tried to conduct business from his sickbed in his wagon. Moritz believed it was only a passing affliction, and he could not be convinced otherwise. He even took time to negotiate the purchase of property around his lager, which would be called Maritz Dam. Erasmus Smith, his brother-in-law, was near at hand. They had, had their differences, but now the past was forgotten. On Sunday 23rd of September, Smit was called to Maritz's bedside, and the trekker leader died at 11 that night. Moritz was buried two days later on Tuesday, 25th of September. A vast concourse of men and women followed his casket to the grave beside the little Tugela River. Meanwhile, far away to the north, Mzilikazi Komalo of the Amar and had turned into a violent refugee after being defeated by a force of Boers, Krikwa and Barolong in November 1837 at Egebeni. As you know, Mzilikazi himself had escaped the attackers by pure chance he had gone north in the face of threats by Bapedi Balaka ruler Mapela. It wasn't just the Boers and the Grikwa, the Baralong, the Bakwena and the Batlokwa who were raiding in the Haifelt and down in now what is modern-day Botswana. The Amma Ndebele also had a violent relationship with the Botswana. In 1832, the Amma Ndebele moved into the Lahuruchi region adjacent to southeastern Botswana, having swallowed up over two dozen Marafe or tribes and Mzilikansi was now addressed by many Botswana as the Taotona, the king. He had demanded tribute from all the Marafe. Among those who refused were the Baralong Burachidi, led by their prince Monchiwa. They executed Mzilikansi's tribute collectors when they pitched up demanding treasure. Things got worse for Mzilikansi when word of his defeat at the hands of the Boers along the Vaal in 1837 spread westwards. On all sides, groups began to join what you could call the loose southern Botswana-Boer-Griqua alliance in challenging the Amandabeli. To the north, refugees like Pelani reinforced the position of Mapelas Bapedi. To the west, Secheli's Bakwena and Sechoma's Bangwatu, along with Sebejo's Bangwaketzi, engaged in hit-and-run attacks on Mzilikatsi's outlying kraals. Some Amandabeli had already been sent to scout out the possibility of moving into Botswana. In the face of the new Baralong Boer offensive, Mzalukasi decided to shift the rest of his people. On the 12th of November 1837, the Botswana and the Boers had watched together as thousands of Amandabeli crossed into Botswana at Sikwani. It's quite a large town on the modern border of Botswana and South Africa today, northeast of Khabaroni. For the Botswana people, the struggle against the Amandabeli had entered a new and more dangerous phase in 1837 and 1838. Secheli's Bakwena and Sechoma's Banguato suddenly found themselves in the path of Mzilikazi's advance. With the entire Amandibeli population pouring across Kweneng's eastern frontier, Secheli pulled back from Kopong, which was about 25 kilometers north of modern day Jabaron, to the relative safety of his Lepepe hideaway, another 185 kilometers north. Bakwena scouts kept a careful eye on the invaders' movements. They reported that the Amandebeli had divided into two columns. Mzidikatsi and most of his warriors were moving quickly to the northwest, while another, under the general named Gundwan, went northeast. Secheli saw his opportunity and attacked the second column, capturing many cattle. Further north, Sakhoma was also bold. He raided the Bakai cattle posts around Shoshong, which is just off the main road to Francistown after hearing that they had been entrusted with the amandebele mafisa, or lone cattle. The Nguni leaders, you'll know by now, indulged in lone cattle, portioning them out to vassal chiefs as a kind of insurance policy for both sides. Msidikatsi responded by sending a force against Sekhoma, which recaptured the cattle and took many Banguato captives. According to some oral history in Botswana, Sekhoma launched a counterattack at Paji, where he then recaptured most of this herd, before retreating quickly deep into the Mahadekhadi pans. It was there, on the incredible salt pans, that Sechoma's eventual heir, Kama III, was born, part of the Kama royal name and family. While moving through Botswana, Mzilikatsi's ultimate destination was western Zimbabwe. he had eyed this area for some time and knew of its rocky outcrops, a good place for defenders. But it was not vacant. It was the core area of the Bakalanga Banyai otherwise known as the Rozvi Kingdom. There is a fascinating link between this area and the people of Zululand. The basic story goes like this. For decades, the Rozvi Kingdom had been weakened by internal tensions. By the 1830s, King Mambo and other members of the royal Nichasiki dynasty clashed with Tumbali, a royal tribute collector, who in turn clashed with the high priest of the Mwali. The ripples of the Difakani had caused chaos all the way up here because from 1832 the Bakalanga kingdom was further disrupted by Ingoni, or northern Inguni invaders who were like the Amandabeli and they had fled Shaka's wars. One of these groups was led by a woman named Nyamazuma, who killed the Mambo Msulu just before the arrival of the Amandabeli in 1840. So Mzilikazi subsequently married Nyamazuma resulting in her soldiers joining his army, leaving the Nichasika dynasty to flee further east, abandoning most of their subjects to the Amandabele. I'll come back to these goings-ons in a future episode and also talk a little more about the Rasvi, a remarkable tale of ivory, gold, slaves, routes to the fabled seaports in East Africa and a close link to Arab and Indian commerce. Right now, it's time to halt the story and prepare the bultong. It's been a long session. Before going, a quick thank you to all the listeners. We've hit one million listens to this series. So thank you so much for tuning in to the History of South Africa podcast. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me or through X directly at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.